Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December the 10th, 2015. It's Thursday, and that means it's time for a listener, listener calls show. Uh, these are for your calls into the Think Line, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Call that number, you'll get my voice messaging service. Leave a question or a comment or what have you for the show, and you may hear yourself very well next Thursday on the show. You can't call in live for today's show because... It's a podcast. It's not broadcast live. It's pre-recorded. Actually, the way that I do this show, probably doing it live would be all but impossible anyway. If you do call in, remember to follow procedure. You're more likely to get on the air. Procedure is know what you're going to ask or what you're going to say before you call in so you don't get tongue-twisted and tied. Uh, go ahead and make your point or go ahead and ask your question right up front. Uh, then throw any details in after that. If you do that, I promise you your call will go smoothly. Right now, I've cleaned out the basket again. Um, there was only one call I couldn't use this week, and uh, I've actually gone a little bit into the past to pick up some other calls. So if you want to get on the air, this is the time to call, 866-65-THINK, and uh, you will probably be on next week's show. I usually put about 10 on if I have 10 good, clear calls on questions that I, I can answer or in some instances that I want. There's times when I get a question, I just don't feel like talking about it that day, and I'm I'm sorry, guys, so just some days I don't want to do some things. It's just the way that it is. I try to do the best I can for you, though. Right up front today, I want to let you guys know that um, we're supposed to be doing a work, little mini workshop, a few hours on on Saturday uh, to plant a bunch of locust trees on my property. I, it looks like I'm going to have to cancel that. To, before I make the official decision, I'm going to wait for the weather update tomorrow, uh, tomorrow morning before I make a decision. But it, right now it looks like we're going to get rained on heavy almost all day Saturday. And there's two problems there. One, I don't want people miserable and unhappy and covered in mud. And the other thing is the work we're doing is designed to improve the property. And odds are if we work in an environment like that, we'll actually make the property worse. So I don't want to do that. Uh, the area we're going to be planting in when it rains, it gets very, very muddy and we'll end up with a mess. So it looks like I'll have to cancel it. It looks like it might get rescheduled for the 20th, which is next Sunday. Uh, that's that's the best I'm going to be able to do, but I don't really know right now. Next up, before we get into your calls today, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day, number one today, BulkAmmo.com. When I need ammo and I want it in bulk, I go to BulkAmmo.com. Why? Because the name says what you're going to get. Ammo in bulk at great prices with lightning-fast shipping. How fast is their shipping? It's almost like this. I've placed my order... I go on about my day and I hear, gee, who's that? It's the postman with my ammo. How did that happen? It's not quite that fast, but it feels that fast. I think for most of us to think, you know what I should do? I should run out to the you know sporting goods store or whatever and, and bulk up on ammo this week. By the time you got around to doing it, it could be sitting on your doorstep. That's how quick their shipping is. They have all of the common cal calibers, great pricing, excellent service, and they're a long-term sponsor. They've been with us for, I think, four years now. So when you need ammo and you need it in bulk, 
get on over to bulk ammo. Remember, ammo is one of the three components to the, the, the triangle of gun operator effectiveness. You've got to have the weapon. You go to a gunfight without a gun, you got a problem. You, the operator, needs training. But even with a good operator and a good firearm, without the ammo, man, that's the terminal tackle, as we say in fishing. You've got to have the ammo to put food on the table, to protect life and property, and to train effectively. Check out BulkAmmo.com today. And remember, they do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Just take the benefits section of your MSB for more information on that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Sawtooth Tactical. You'll find them over at sawtac.com. You'll get all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle if you get on over to Sawtac. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and nestled in the wilderness of the Sawtooth Mountains. That's why they call them Sawtac. And when I say everything, I mean everything from the awesome manly titanium spork, Maxpedition bags, Magpul magazines, SOE tactical gear, and everything else you can think of. If it's tactical, they have Have it at Sawtooth Tactical. Remember the website again, www.sawtac.com, and they also do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. So if you're a member and you're going to get some tactical material from Sawtac, get into your MSB account, click on Benefits, and look up Sawtac and get that discount. Again, a veteran-owned, veteran-operated company nestled in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho, sawtac.com. With that knocked out, let's go ahead and uh, take a look at the history segment, the year 1691, because the episode 1691, and the awesome Alex Shrugged has two queued up for us today. We have Holly's Diving Bell in the Bends, and we have Leastler's New York Rebellion. I'm going to read Halley's Diving Bell in the Bends, because I have like this totally different take on it than Alex, and it's not that I disagree with his take, I just, it just makes me think of something else. And I like when we have two views back into history that are not just facts and figures. That makes history interesting, practical, and useful. Edmund Halley is best known for predicting Halley's Comet, but Halley has many talents. He has designed a diving bell that can be submerged to 60 feet, supplied with air for up to an hour. Metal diving bells and wooden frame submarines have been something of a novelty up till now. But once Halley's design is turned into reality, extended excursions underwater will be possible. The diving bell will be useful for savage, salvage operations and, higher, and the higher pressure placed on the body are being used as medical treatments for some diseases. My take by Alex Shrugged. Okay, some pumps powered by steam engine existed in the late 1600s, but they were rare. And they pumped water, not air pressure. Halley was not pumping air down to the diving bell. He was using weighted barrels filled with air. The diving bell was a heavy metal object that was open at the bottom. The barrels of air were released under the bell, thus supplying the additional air for breathing. Higher pressures of air can have real beneficial effect to the body because it allows body tissues to absorb more oxygen. However, if the pressure is released too quickly, the gases that have been absorbed into the tissues suddenly bubble up within the tissues and create an extremely painful condition known as the bends. That term won't come into use until the 1800s when laborers will bend over in pain after digging out of the foundations for the Brooklyn Bridge. A chamber of air under the water allowed workers to dig, but when they left the chamber to normal air pressure, they would experience pain and some even died. Edmund Halley himself suffered from such tissue damage during experiments within the bell. Okay, here's my take on this that's totally unique. Uh, or not unique, just different. This was the edge of exploration at the time. Going 60 feet into the deep when it was first being done 
would have been like our first astronauts that, that skimmed the edge of the atmosphere, orbited the planet a couple times, returned and plunked down into the water. Later on, you, you, you might even see that as a tourist opportunity. And right now, even though we're not into full-on you know, space travel, you can actually buy a ride in a U-2 spy plane, which flies right at that edge of the stratosphere and see the curvature of the Earth. And we, we don't look at that now any longer as really risking your life for exploration. And this device soon turned into something that people would, you know, you have some medical problems, will put you in the bell and, you know, it'll help you. And it might. In fact, this is actually, in some ways, almost a form of blood doping. So blood doping is when we take more blood, more red cells, and put them into somebody so that they can have higher oxygen levels. Athletes do this. And in some ways, this is kind of like that because we're putting super amounts of oxygen into the blood. But it wouldn't technically be blood doping. So some athletes might actually use this type of atmospheric pressure to uh, improve their athletic ability, right? So it, it, something that could kill you is now understood well enough to be controlled to be used to enhance human performance. It's gone from exploration to just a thing. And that's fine because that advances what the next edge is. But to me, one of the saddest things about recent history is our retreat from space, And yes, I know private industry may change that, but private industry is probably going to change that in low Earth orbit type things. Um, for all the SpaceX talks and going to Mars, we'll, we'll see if that happens. Um, but when I was a little kid, I've said this before, I dreamed of growing up to be an astronaut. I was kind of crushed when I found out about the, you know, the, the usual path was a pilot path and you had to have, you know, you go in the Air Force and, that type of thing, and I was little, so there was no concept of go be a scientist and you can get on or whatever. Um, but I found out that you know you had to have good vision, and I have one eye that's pretty much legally blind and doesn't correct very well with lenses, and that would take away any pilot potential, military pilot potential from me. But I wanted to be an astronaut. It was like the most awesome thing in the world to ever be was to be an astronaut. And, and we don't really look at astronauts as heroes today. We look at them as people that do a job, and yeah, you could die, but we could all die on the highway. And uh, we kind of retreated from that that next edge of space exploration. Part of why I think we don't look at astronauts with the awe that we did in the 70s and the 60s is they were constantly going further. And then we slowly retreated back into ourselves and built this shuttle that goes in circles around the Earth, and nothing wrong with that technology, and the people that worked on it are awesome people that did amazing things, but we stopped reaching further. And I think in many ways we've stopped doing that in society as a whole. We're not really pushing the edge of exploration as to where we can go and what we can do the way that I think we did for the, the most of the 1900s. Now this is the 2000, you know, millennia. Where when we were kids, we, we were told by the time we got to here, like, you know, Air Force pilots would be flying in outer space and spaceships, right? And there'd be hovercrafts and, and what have you. And my view is, I don't know if all of that stuff that we were told would happen, you know, the fanciful stuff could have happened by now, but I think a lot more of it could if we had continued to push the boundaries of what we're capable of doing. Where what we've done now is we, we started pushing technology for the purpose of comfort versus expansion and exploration. My take by Jack Spirico told you it would be different than Alex's. Next up, let me remind you about the Member Support Brigade. You want to support the show and the work we do? 
Go to the Survival Podcast, click on Members to learn more. And that's all I'll say about that today, so I can get right into your calls. Let's go ahead and take that first call today. Hey, Jack. Matt from Ohio. Just like to hear your thoughts on the uh, Convention of States uh, ideology that's going around. Thanks, man. Well, this will actually tie in nicely with the last call of the day and my ending comments to a degree, so I'll only say so much on it here. In the end, I feel that today, any type of political solution within America, especially at the federal level, is nothing more than what you would call a wonderful fiction. A belief that the people of the country will unite together under a convention of the states to limit the federal government, specifically by passing a balanced budget amendment, and maybe providing other restrictions upon the federal government. Um not going to happen. I mean, that's how I feel about it. And it's not because the process isn't legitimate under our Constitution and our government. Um, it's not because it, it wouldn't be at least better than what we have if we did it. It's not because there aren't a lot of people that would like to do it. It's because the will of the American people to do it is not there. The American people today, by a vast majority... I would say more than two-thirds, desire fundamentally a big government. They will say they don't, and then they will support every single thing that enables a big, bloated government. And I am including Republicans in this. In fact, I would say Republicans in general are just as bad at empowering the state with big government. Because everybody says they want a smaller government until you actually start start talking about actually cutting spending on the things that the government spends the most money on. Republicans are all about cutting welfare, all about cutting welfare, actual welfare to individual citizens. And I'm not saying there's not massive abuse in this system. It's a very small part of the total national budget. You could cut 100% of the, of the welfare. A hundred percent, including the people that legitimately, if we're going to have a system that says we do what we do, should be on some sort of assistance. I'm talking about people that legitimately can't work, have had serious, I'm talking about all social services other than social security. You could cut a hundred percent of it, we still wouldn't balance the budget. Well, a hundred percent. And if you ask anybody who's for cutting it, I want to cut off all them welfare mamas. Okay, so should we cut all assistance, period? Almost everyone that, that talks like that would say, well, we can't cut it all. Okay, so then you have to say, well, what are the big costs? The big costs are military. Can't cut that! America! My America! Right? You can't cut the military. Okay, well, we have over a 100 different nations we have a military presence in. Don't you think we could at least start to look at defending our borders and not being the police force of the world? And if we did that, we could actually spend less. No, can't cut my own military. All right. Social Security. Not all people. Okay. Well, then what are you supposed to do? I mean, do you know what the, 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 the single biggest expense on the American uh, taxpayer's balance sheet is other than military spending and Social Security? It's interest on the debt. It's interest on the debt. Well, we're going to get a balanced budget amendment. Okay, it doesn't make that payment go away. The debt is the debt. The debt is the debt. And, and, and the actual cost 
of requiring a balanced budget in this country is something the American people currently will not stomach. The cost is too high. Too many things have to go. Or you have to increase taxation to cover the spending, which Americans also do not want for various, very obvious reasons. It's not going to happen. I wish it would. I wish the American people would man and woman up and actually be willing to put a halt to this advance of government and say, if you can't pay for it, you can't have it. You can't. Because that alone would curtail the inv invasion by government into the privacy of the people. So, as an anarchist, I accept all this. Okay, as, as, as a reasonable man that understands that if I work outside of the system and I want people who are in the system to be okay with me doing that, and if I actually want to influence them and drag the system by my working outside of it, and I believe anarchists do more to change things inside the system than the people inside the system do because they inspire the people that actually want to be in the system to actually move in the direction that the anarchist is moving. In other words, Rosa Parks didn't call a meeting. She just sat in the front of the bus and broke the law. That was an anarchist action. It was doing right for right's sake in violation of the law because the law was wrong. You, you can't really get more anarchist than that. Okay? So as an anarchist, I want to work outside the system. I believe that my best efforts are outside the system. It doesn't mean that when I see a state do something like legalize marijuana, I don't say that goes in the wind column. So I would very much love to see a convention of the states, but I actually think right now it would be more likely that a convention of the states would be used to do more things to empower than we can government because the average American wants more government. And again, you can say you don't, but if you pull people aside on the street and start asking them exactly where to pare down government anywhere that it's big enough that if we brought it back it would make a difference that they're resistant to almost every place. And even when they're okay with one place, it's not enough. It's not enough. Many people that call themselves liberals would be okay with a reduction in military spending. But if you start talking about how to fix Social Security because it's a fundamentally flawed Ponzi scheme, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. And many people on the right would be open to that if it could be done in a way that would actually protect the older generation right now that's already counting on it But when you start talking about cutting military spending, they don't want to talk about it. Well, those two things cannot be ignored if you're going to reduce spending. And if you're not going to reduce spending, then you're either going to borrow money or you're going to increase taxation. And if you increase taxation right now, you're going to cause a severe recession. And if you decrease spending right now, you're going to cause a severe recession. And if we fail to do either, we're eventually going to run into a severe depression. And the American people have a habit of as long as we can kick the can, let's keep kicking it. And the minute they're remotely uncomfortable, they bitch, whine, and cry and beg government for a solution. And that's what's about to happen. You know what's about to happen? You're about to get a complete government takeover of the healthcare system. It will be done before the end of the next president's first term. It absolutely will. And the American people will beg for it. Because... One person after the next is finding themselves what you would call health insurance poor. They, they can't have any quality of life because so much money is being sucked out in the cost of health care. 
because the Affordable Care Act did exactly what it was supposed to do. Make health insurance completely unaffordable for the average person, especially the average family. And the people that fought the hardest against it are about to beg for it. You watch America beg for more government over the next four years from a Republican president with a Republican majority who will give it to them. And then tell me we're going to have a convention of the states to limit government? Again, I think it's a wonderful fiction. I wish it was not. It's not the process can't work. It's that right now the process won't work with the mentality of the American people. Hi, Jack. This is uh, Alex in uh, Central New York State. Um, I want to know a little bit more about what I can do to help sort of revitalize a pond or, uh, uh, you know, sort of bring back and um, really make some, some good use of an existing pond. Uh, my situation is that my uh, property has a pond on it that my father used for years to sort of use as a dump. Uh, things like old mattresses, toilets, just, just sort of junk, that kind of thing. Um, my project next summer is going to be cleaning all that kind of stuff out of there, but after that, I'm wondering if you had any advice on how to uh, maybe further dig out, improve a pond, sort of revitalize that pond. Thank you. Bye. Well, this is outside of my area of expertise. It really is. I can give you some advice from a standpoint of being an experienced fisherman and having a, a pretty good understanding of freshwater biology. Um, but from a mechanical aptitude standpoint, I haven't actually built a lot of ponds, and I've actually never rehabbed a pond that was really messed up. My best advice for you, if the budget makes it possible, is probably going to be able be to find a local pond contractor who, among other things, rather than just building ponds, specializes in removing silt and reestablishing ponds. Most likely, your pond is a, a very mature pond. And as ponds mature, um, so let's put the garbage aside for a minute, because obviously you're going to get that out of there. And just think of what is a pond's life like? And I think most people think of ponds as fairly permanent fixtures in the landscape. And if it's a larger pond with quite a bit of depth in general within the human lifetime, It is actually quite permanent to our timeline of thinking, though the pond will certainly age in advance and, and go through succession during our lifetimes. There'll still be a pond there when we die. But the, the destiny of a pond is to become a climax forest. Freshwater ecosystems are one of the fastest ways to build topsoil known to man. So even a small pond that let's say is, oh, I don't know, eight feet deep at its deepest point, if, if we're building topsoil at an inch a year, would be completely filled with topsoil in 96 years. And, and many pond systems are going to build topsoil, actually, or soil or sediment much quicker than an inch a year, maybe two. So if, if we do that, we're at 48 years where an 8-foot pond would be completely, totally silted in. So if this pond's been around long enough that your father threw toilets and mattresses in it, you just have to kind of shake your head and wonder what makes a person do something like this. Um, it's probably also been around long enough that a lot of 
sediment has been washed into it. It may, in fact, be somewhat eutrophic, which is where you're getting to the point where there's so much algae growth that the, 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 the algae on the top that's photosynthetic clouds out the algae below, and you start to have very rapid algae cycles, and you have algae settling very, very quickly to the bottom and building sediment up really, really fast. So, again, this is something to get a good contractor out there to take a look at, but it's most likely the case that if you can do it, the best course of action is going to be draining the pond or mostly draining the pond, removing all the debris and using some equipment to actually move a lot of the sediment out of that pond. Assuming that the only thing thrown in there were toilets and mattresses and stuff, there may be some bugaboos and nasties in that stuff that you don't really like. But there's probably no PCBs or anything really, really dangerous or bad. So what comes out of there is some of the most fertile stuff you could ever find. But it needs to be spread out in a pretty shallow pile, a pretty big pile. It needs to be left uh, for several months. And then it can be used basically as compost. And it's amazing. But it is, it is much, or most certainly at this point, anaerobic. It's at the bottom of a pond. It, it can't get oxygen. So it has to have a chance for the anaerobes to die off as it dries out, as it cycles through, and for it to become aerated. And at that point, it makes wonderful, wonderful fertilizer. That would be the overall approach I would take. And I would also take at the time that you have the pond drained or mostly drained, and you're doing this dredging is what you're actually doing here, that you look at it as an opportunity to put in structures for fish. You go to pondboss.com and check out their forums. They have a lot of stuff about building fish structures out of PVC pipe and things like that. Look at it as an opportunity to think about where you might want to establish certain vegetative plants and, and, and kind of start almost as if you were building a, a brand new pond. Now, while there certainly will be a lot of the pond's biology uh, left over in that, you were probably going to really kick down the zoo and, and phytoplankton. So it might make a, a really smart thing to do to go to several ponds uh, in your area and collect a couple gallons of water from each and dump them in your pond kind of as a reseeding of the, the, the zooplankton and the, and the phytoplankton in that pond to start rebuilding the food web. I would definitely do a very heavy stocking of a feeder fish if you want fish in your pond. And specifically, I would look at something like fathead minnows because every place that sells fish for stocking sells those. And what they're going to tell you is, well, get your minnows and get your game fish and do it all at the same time. You can but what I would actually do is I would put them into that system with that revitalized zooplankton and algae and everything else. And I would also probably feed them. And I would just feed them like regular plain old flake fish food a couple times a week to kind of kickstart them and get their breeding population up. And then I would go in and I would stock the pond 6 to 12 months later with what other, ga other game fish you want to bring back into the pond. Now, there's a lot of things I don't know here. I don't know how big the pond is, how deep the pond is, how practical it is to drain the pond. Does the pond naturally get really low at certain times of the year that would make work better? But your, 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 your contractor, local contractor that specializes in pond maintenance and building, will know all of these things for your area and be able to take information and feedback from you and help you out. And, you know, I can see somebody wading into a pond and dragging about all this you know, refuse. And if that's all you can do, then fine. But bringing heavy equipment in and getting that equipment to do it, I mean, an excavator with a grabber, 
can just grab that stuff and pile it up. You can rent a great big, um, you should do something with it, right? So you can rent like a big dumpster, uh, for a couple hundred bucks. And that excavator could just put the stuff straight into the dumpster. And then you call the dumpster people and they come take it away. And if it's that bad and you need two, well, then another one comes back. Uh, I don't know how much you have in there. So, uh, you got to kind of make that decision for yourself. But that's the approach I would take in a perfect scenario. In a not so perfect scenario, I would just get all of the gunk out of there. And I, I would kind of get a, a reading on like how you put a little boat in the pond maybe and get out there with a, with a, like a pool stick. I don't mean a pool stick you play billiards with, like like a long, extendable pool stick like you use for net cleaning a pool and get depth measurements of your pond, see if you can find any structure, maybe throw a cheap fish finder on a small john boat and get a feeling for what the pond's like and start thinking about where you can add structure and what have you. But if you if you go to Pond Boss, sign up for that forum and, and find the appropriate board for it and kind of post deeper details, what you'll get are tons of people there that... That's what their biggest passion in life is, is small ponds and medium-sized ponds on land that you own and manage for yourself. And they're really great, awesome people, and they will help you like crazy if you go with kind of a little bit of a servant attitude, not just, hey, because I, and I don't think you would based on your call, but I just have to say I've seen people post things in forums as their first post, almost like demanding help. It never goes well. It never goes well. Always act in a forum like you would if you went to an actual face-to-face -face meeting for the very first time and nobody knew you. You would kind of feel like you need to be a little bit ginger with people, a little bit soft with people, maybe see if you can do something to help somebody else first before you ask for anything. Or if you did ask for anything, you'd be like, man, I really would appreciate some help. Does anybody have any ideas? And do you know where I can get more information? Because a lot of times in these forums, what will happen is someone say, you know what, there's a great thread on that. Go here and read that thread. Before you demand more information, this is really not for the caller. This is for every best forum etiquette. A little bonus here. Go read that thread in full because that way you can ask intelligent questions that haven't been answered 400 times already by active members of that forum. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, take another call. Hey, Jack. This is uh, John from Central Florida. I want to know some ideas on building a low-maintenance food plot for deer. Uh, background, uh, the... Hunting lease that I'm on is in northwest uh, Florida. The property is in a pine farm. Uh, lots of swamp and lots of pines. So just wondering what you're thinking. Thanks, Jack. Well, say so pines, you've got acidity. You, you're in Florida, you've got sand. Your fertility is probably crap. Um, this is also another one of these questions where I'm not an expert, but I can infer certain things based on my knowledge of what do deer like to eat, what will grow well in that area, what will be likely to go perennial, and self-reseed. And I'm going to tell you straight off, you want to go with legumes. You want to go with legumes uh, that, that deer like. So uh, in, in that regard, vetch, extremely tough, uh, extremely aggressive, and with your rainfall in that state and that type of soil, it'll probably be just fine without irrigation. So that should be something I would use. Uh, you want to kind of build something that has like a, an annual cycling going on. So it, if it lives here, as some of my students have said when they come to my property, people that find things that live here always take seeds. They're like, if it lives there, it'll live anywhere. Uh, one of the things that's lived here that deer love to eat that's got into a self-receding pattern comes back every year by itself. It, I had it this year. I haven't planted it since the first year we got here is red cowpea. 
So cow peas, and I would say red cow pea, black eye pea, crowder peas, iron and clay peas, cream peas, purple hole peas, whatever you can get the cheapest, right? It'd be really great. Um, soybean, uh, I'm not a big fan of soy, but deer like it. And it'd be something that a small amount mixed into your blend would probably do well and probably naturalize over time. Austrian winter pea would give you a great pea that would, so you have your summer pea growing in, in, in your, your summer and you have a winter pea growing in your winter. And your Florida winters, Austrian winter pea will go straight through the winter. Um, alfalfa is, is a, an incredible plant. Uh, that can handle just about any situation. So I would look at adding some alfalfa, some red clover, and white clover. Those are the, both uh, really great additions. And you could do Dutch white, New Zealand white. It really won't matter. The clovers are not going to really enjoy your summers, but they'll just lie dormant and come back. Um, you also might want to look at uh, partridge pea. And you want to make the mix more affordable Uh, some grasses in there that are inexpensive. I would say oats, rye, and wheat are, are a great blend. And I would use like a Caius white oat uh, and like a Merced rye because that will be in your coldest part of the year. That stuff will still grow. And then wheat, I'd use like a, a hard red uh, or something like that. I, I think if you went with some sort of a, a mix like that and you wanted something that would do – Uh, as a grass for your, your summer, maybe millet, uh, is dirt cheap, uh, and maybe some, some rye grass. Um, uh, and then you kind of have a bridge between the millet and the, the, the cereal grains, uh, during the cooler parts. And, and rye grass is dirt cheap as well. Uh, that would probably do as well as anything for you in your situation. And what I think you might want to do is you would seed that pretty heavily. And time your seeding, so you would want to seed your cool weather crops in the cool weather, which is now. And then as you come into later spring, go with all your warm weather crops and get through one cycle with a pretty heavy seeding. And then just a moderate, small amount, like hand reseeding, depending on how big your plot is, uh, of, of a mixed summer and winter, summer and winter. And, uh, you know, that's... That's probably going to do as much as anything would for you. I would also throw some brassias in there. Uh, so I would probably throw some mustard and daikon in there. And I would do that as a cool season planting. You could plant that right now. I'd say you could plant that any time from the end of September up until about early March. And at that point, don't waste your money on it because the heat's going to kill it. Uh, those are going to put big, giant tap roots in. They're going to help develop that soil. They're going to make pathways for other things. They're also going to make a lot of biomass. Deer will eat daikon, and they will eat mustard. They won't eat it anywhere near the level. They'll eat everything else. This is going to leave you a litter. Uh, so if we think about it like grazing cattle, we want cattle to graze grass to a certain point. We also want them to trample grass over. We don't want them to graze the grass to the ground. We want the new grass protected by the carbon on top. And we want that balance. So we're not going to get anywhere near that level of management in this situation by planting some bigger things and some things that deer don't favor as much, like the millet. Uh, the millet will probably be much more likely to make it to self-reseeding. They'll only eat that when they're out of everything else. Uh, so you probably will get quite a bit of self-reseeding, but you'll have to keep adding seed. That, that's, that's kind of the approach that I would take there. Uh, initially, you probably do want to plow or disc the area for your first seeding. And once you do it once, I would never do it again. 
If you own the land, I would also be advising you to plant some trees, provide them protection until they get up above the brows that are for the deer, that are low cost uh, and, and, and high value. So I would throw in apples from seed because you don't care if they taste good because deer will eat any apple. I'd throw persimmon into that mix, things like that. And I would do seedlings, again, defended from the deer, either with uh, like uh, electric, uh, what was the word I'm looking for? Not electric fencing, but the, uh, the tape. The movable tape, like we have in West Virginia where we plant all our chestnuts, we just have a piece of tape uh, on both sides, uh, like used for a laneway for cattle of the of the swales, and that keeps the deer from destroying them because they don't want to get electrocuted. So you could do that if you were doing a lot, or you could just put, you know, small, um, five-foot-high, basically chicken wire cages around your trees to keep the deer from browsing them until they get up high enough Because if you have stuff like apple and persimmon, what happens is your apples start dropping in early to mid-fall. Persimmons are going to hold all the way into winter. They'll do some dropping in fall, but it'll drop more and more in the winter. And I, I can't tell you what white-tailed deer think of persimmons. It's unbelievable. Uh, I would also put in some oaks for mast and things like that. But I don't know that you would be doing this on a lease unless this is something that you're confident that your family would have a long-term lease and that the company you're leasing it from would be okay with that. I'm not even sure how they're going to feel about your food plots. Um, and then the other thing is so low maintenance. They become low maintenance over time, but they take quite a bit of work to get off the ground. And if basically what they're saying is, well, we clear-cut this area so you can plot it all you want, but next year we're going to put trees in and you're going to clear-cut this, then you're going to constantly be doing that. Um, and you may be better off doing things like learning the pattern of your deer and not really worrying about a food plot. Uh, or putting out mineral licks and things like that. I don't know what the laws are on feeders in Florida. In Texas, you know, you might just be better off setting up a feeder on a timer or something like that to uh, provide supplemental feed to the deer herd you're going to be hunting. All right, with that, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. My name is Scott, and I currently live in Central PA. My question is about the role of body armor for homesteaders and general-purpose preppers alike. Details. Uh, well, I agree with you about the unlikely possibility of a Red Dawn scenario. With the recent events in Cali and the introduction of Congressional House Bill H.R. 378, I have mentally revisited the issue. I already have soft body armor, which I have and continue to use for a number of purposes but where do chest rigs and plates fit into the mix? My thoughts are, if I am training to defend my home and property with a rifle, then I have to consider that those I am defending against came to the same or similar firearm choice. In this scenario, something like the L.A. riots, Hurricane Katrina, an organized home invasion, and the like, isn't it prudent to armor myself to deal with at least as much firepower as I am sending out? The likelihood that at least somebody is going to have a deer rifle in that scenario is high, if not an AK or an AR. Thanks for everything. Love the show. And uh, please keep challenging my thoughts and paradigms. Okay, there's a lot of um, justification for the purchase of body armor in there. And I'm actually going to address these with some pushback. So I'm going to start out with, if you want body armor and you have the budget for it, And in general, all your other preparedness needs are met, and you're not robbing the kid's college fund or something to buy it, then you should go ahead and buy body armor. Up to the point where I believe this enough that I do own body armor myself. 
And I do have, for members of the Support Brigade, a discount on Infidel Body Armor, some of the best stuff you can buy, available in my Member Support Brigade. Okay, so I'm not anti-body armor. But what I am is anti-Jack, please justify this purchase for me. Um, because I, I, usually that's a lot of times these questions what they're actually saying. So let's start out with the first thing. The first thing that has me rethinking this is HR uh, 378, uh, which is the uh, Armor Possession Act introduced into uh, United States Congress on January 14th, 2015. It has the snowball's chance in hell of ever becoming law. It was introduced, and that was it, and we're at the end of the year. It sat there for a year and done absolutely the square root of F all. Uh, you're in a GOP-controlled Congress uh, that is very pro-gun uh, ownership. Uh, the, the, so the, 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 thought, the thought that soon they will make it illegal to buy, uh, and I'll buy some before they do, it's just it's not happening right now. Now, at the state level, some of this kind of crap could happen, but I'm not aware of any of it just yet. If anybody does it, it'll be dumbass states like California first or New York or Illinois. So my solution to that is don't live there. So I don't think that it being made illegal is is probable. So it's not something to make you urgently go buy it because you might not be able to later. I would also tell you that reading H.R. 378, uh, the, the, the summary text of it anyway, if it were passed, unless somebody managed to squirrel in some kind of grandfather rider, uh, it's not like you're going to say, okay, but if you have it already, it's okay. It's going to be turn your shit in just like the high-capacity magazine uh, ban in Connecticut. All right, So I don't think you're going to be able to like do like the pre-ban thing like with high-capacity mags during the assault weapons uh, ban or what have you. I just don't think that's going to happen if this ever does pass. So I, I think then you've invested in something they may or may not offer some kind of buyback on. They'll probably just tell you you're, you're shit out of luck. See if the police department will buy it from you because they deserve it and you don't. So I, I don't know that that's a, a cause. The next summation is, well, look at what happened in the L.A. riots and look what happened in, in, in San Bernardino. Okay, well, what happened in the L.A. riots is a whole bunch of idiots ran out in the streets and started doing a whole bunch of damage and messing a whole bunch of stuff up. But they didn't really run out there with a whole bunch of long arms on them because if they did, they knew full well that the police that, 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 issued, that used more restraint than they ever should have because they were concerned about national riots being kicked off by it would have, in fact, started shooting. So their their whole goal was how much can we get away with without getting arrested, clubbed in the head, or shot? Okay, so there wasn't it would have done you very little good to have body armor in the L.A. riots. But what actually worked in the L.A. riots was a bunch of Korean guys sitting up on top of their building with AK-47s and 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 SKSs saying, "You come here, we're going to shoot your ass." And, and the bad guys just decided not we'll just not go to that place. Because they meant it, they would do it, and they were within their legal rights to defend their property against what would be considered a lethal threat. If you're in a riot situation, you're attacked by rioters who are meaning to do you harm. Their sheer numbers would indicate that you, you're, 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 you're at threat. Now, would that have passed the legal system? We don't know. We don't know. And I'm not giving you legal advice there. I'm never giving you legal advice. I'm just saying that there was enough belief that these guys would shoot and probably be able to shoot and get away with it that the bad guys didn't come. San Bernardino, um, having body armor in your vehicle or something during that event would have accomplished the square root of F all. 
It would have done nothing for you. If you would have been working at the place where the people got shot, the best thing you could have had on you was a sidearm to be able to take out the threat because it would be a practical thing that you could carry. As long as you didn't get shot first, you at least had a chance. But you certainly weren't going to be going, hold on, let me put my body armor on. And this is the thing about body armor. One doesn't walk around in full body armor unless one is a soldier in a combat zone. And then one really doesn't want to. They only do it when they really feel like an engagement is, is likely because it's heavy, it's bulky, it's hot, it's, it's not comfortable. Okay? So... With that in mind, it's not really practical for day-to-day -day use. So as a private owner of it, you have to ask yourself, what is the scenario where it would be? And your reasoning is, if I'm using an AK-47 or an AR-15 to defend my property, isn't it most likely that I'll be facing a threat that has the same level of armament? I hope not. I hope not. I mean, you are talking a Red Dawn type or, you know, Patriots the Collapse scenario for that to be the case. Um, it doesn't mean that no criminal is going to come try to invade your home with a long gun. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that it's actually very rare. And if you had a criminal with a long gun, if they were sophisticated at all, and you were willing to kill somebody and use a long gun to, to take their property or take over their land or whatever it is, then if you had any brains at all, you would sit out in the distance, wait for your opportunity, and shoot them in the freaking head and then just walk in. You'd surveil the place, know how many people are there, wait for your opportunity, take everybody out, never give anybody any warning. They're not going to line up like a battlefield scenario so you guys can throw down like some kind of fan fiction novel. I mean, that, that would be, if I was a bad guy, and you said, over there is a, a place with resources, and we need to take out those people to get their resources, well, that's how I would do it. I would just shoot you. And if you're walking around with body armor, trust me, anybody that's smart enough to do that knows you're wearing body armor, I'm going to shoot you in the head. Are you going to wear a full ballistic face shield? You know? I, I just don't see it actually being that practical. Now, could we ever get there? Sure. That's why I'm saying, if you want it and you can afford it, and everything else in your basic preparedness life is locked down, you have 90 days worth of food, minimum. You have a 90-day cash fund to survive getting laid off, which is a hell of a lot more likely than needing body armor. You have basic weapons for defense. You have invested in yourself with training. You, you have water taken care of. You have health and sanitation taken care of. You have a bug-out bag. You have a bug-out plan. You have a bug-in plan. You've pretty much got it squared away. If something went wrong for the next 90 days... The only hole is if somebody attacks you, you don't have body armor, then I can justify body armor. Otherwise, I'm not saying not do it. I'm saying let's be honest. You're buying it because you want it. Just like Karim last week when he asked me about, you know, what's the best lever action rifle for deer hunting? In the end, you're looking for me to justify your purchase of a lever-action rifle. If you want a lever-action rifle, here's some great options, but that's not what you want for deer hunting in Texas. It's what you want because you want it. Go ahead and buy it if you want it, and maybe someday you'll find it ideally useful to a situation, but the odds are such that you better make sure all your other bases are covered first. 
That's how I feel about body armor. This will probably make nobody happy. Uh, I feel like Dr. Bones with his answer on vaccines. No matter what I say here, since my answer is moderate, it makes everybody unhappy. Like, you know, you just want them to take our body armor away. I don't know where you'd get that out of that, but that's, that's, that's what I'll get from some people. And no one needs body armor. I'll get from the people that I don't even know why you listen to this show. Um, I'll tell you though, honestly, the best thing we've gotten out of the body armor we owe, we have, is we've used it on hikes to add weight to our bodies for conditioning. I'm just saying. <laughs> Let's go ahead and take another. It's kind of cool to have a you know a, a thin built, uh, pretty blonde woman with a 140 pound German Shepherd in full body armor taking a walk in the nature center down the road. Um, I can tell you that <laughs> no one bothered her when she was taking those walks by herself when I was working. That's that was kind of cool. Anyway, we'll take another one. Hi, Jack. My name is Frederica. I'm calling from Maryland, and my question is about my home. Uh, I know you're just giving me an opinion, and I have to weigh it out myself. I'm in a uh, bedroom community between Washington, D.C., and Annapolis. I'm going to retire in a year, and I want to know if I should sell my home or if I should rent it. It is paid off. I'm 64. I'm divorced. I'm in a four-bedroom colonial. Um, I'd like to have the cash to buy a piece of land and get a tiny home. Um, but on the other hand, um, maybe I should rent it out and uh, and do that. So I just wondered what your opinion was. Thank you so much. I really love your show. Bye. I guess it really, in many ways, has a lot to do with your financial situation and do you want a cash flow income uh, or do you want a lump sum income? And I mean, that's really part of the way to look at this. If it wasn't paid for, if it wasn't paid for, I would be somewhat concerned here. Uh, you didn't say where you live. So I looked at a place called Crofton that's kind of in between Annapolis and D.C. And, you know, a, a full, I, I found like one five-bedroom house that was renting for over $3,000. And it was rather new and it didn't look like a four-bedroom colonial. And that's like a desirable home. And, you know, you, you, uh, you're in basically a commuter's community. For people that don't know what a bedroom community is, that it's a commuter town, right? It's like it means that like... Almost everybody that lives there works somewhere else. And where would they work? They would work in D.C. or Annapolis. Government jobs, well-paying government jobs, quite an affluent area, um, fairly recession-proof. Um, if you notice, when the recession happened, we didn't lay off a lot of FBI agents or U.S. Treasury workers or you know people that worked for Congress or, or what have you. Those people tended to keep their jobs while, you know, it was people that worked in the private sector that lost their job. You might imagine how I feel about that, but I'm not, in this instance, I'm just analyzing this. I'm not making any judgment about that other than that's the, that's the facts. The day that the government really starts to heavily lay off people, we have huge problems and we're, you know, in the abyss, so to speak. And, and the truth is, I don't see that anytime really soon. So I think you're safe renting. And since you owe no money on it other than your taxes and a management fee, because we'll get to that in a second, you have a very good income out of the property. You have a good cash flow. This is probably a house that I'm going to guess is going to rent in the $3,000 range. And But you're probably paying pretty high property taxes there. But let's say that it's going to rent for three grand. let us say your taxes are ten grand. 
and they might be higher. I mean, I know a lady in, in New Jersey was paying fourteen grand on a house that wasn't. It was nice, but it wasn't. I, I don't understand the tax is in New Jersey. It's probably not that bad. Let's say it was ten grand. We're going to go and shoot for the moon with taxes. Probably not that high. So that leaves twenty six grand. Let's say that a uh, a management company that's going to take care of everything for you is going to charge you uh, $200 a month to do that. So we take another $2,400 off. Let's call it, let's, let's just say they're going to take four grand to manage the property a year for you. And basically that means they're going to collect the rent, they're going to find the tenant, they're going to throw them out if they don't pay the rent, and they're going to see the basic needs of the property. It doesn't mean you're not going to pay for it. If something breaks and needs to be repaired, you're going to pay for it, but they're going to see to it getting done. And that means you're going to be able to go off and live your life any way you want. Well, that's $20,000 a year. That's a pretty nice income. And you still own the underlying property, which you can then sell at any time. Okay? So that has a lot going for it. It really does. And the odds that you won't be able to sell that property at a good price in the future are, are pretty low. So then you have to say to yourself, well, what does that house sell for? Well, realizing there's an awful lot of variance from property to property, and Crofton may be much more expensive or much less expensive than where you live, And I don't know the actual condition of your home. It sounds like an older, beautiful home, honestly, in that part of the world. Um, you know, I'm finding houses listing between $450,000 to $550,000 if they're single-family homes in Crofton, Maryland, with four bedrooms. Uh, the closest thing I see here to a colonial-looking home is selling for $495,000. This house is 2,400 square feet. It's on an 8,400-square-foot lot, so not a really big lot. Um, and it, it is very colonial-looking. I wouldn't call it a true colonial, but it's that kind of crossover thing. I also see some homes selling as high as $600,000. Cutting to the chase, it's probably a good bet um, that your home's worth four hundred grand or more. Okay. Now let's think about this a little bit differently. Okay. <laughs> We can make 20 grand a year in profit on this house if my numbers are accurate. Uh, and in, that means in 10 years we'd make $200,000 in, 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 in income. Uh, that income would be subject to income tax unless we got creative and created an IRA and moved the house in there. And then still that's not going to really work because we have to pay the money when we take it out. Okay, So that doesn't really solve the problem at this point in your life at your age. Assuming we make twenty grand a year profit, we stay 100% occupancy of tenancy, uh, then we are going to go 20 years to get $400,000 in rental income. Now, we're still going to own the house. That's the upside. But you're going to be 84. You're going to be 84. So what you, to, to me, the way we make this decision is if you have a fairly good amount of money set aside for retirement, Social Security for people in your age bracket, you're probably seeing all of it. Um, so you're probably going to make a decent Social Security amount for Social Security anyway. You're probably toward the max. Based on where you live, what you're surrounded by, the fact that you own a paid-for home there, I'm going to assume you worked either in government or a related field, and you have had a pretty good income level till your age. And that means that you've paid quite a bit into Social Security, so you're toward the you know maximum amount that a person can expect to receive. 
you're two years away from being able to start taking Social Security at 66, where you get basically your full Social Security. You can wait for more, but you can take it then. So you have a reasonable income from Social Security. Assuming you have other retirement assets, then I'm going to take and I'm going to sell this house with those numbers because I'd rather have my $400,000 right now than wait 20 years to get a piece mailed out to me. Unless, if I'm concerned about my retirement in those 84-plus years, then by renting it, I can either continue the income flow or I can take a lump sum on the property at that point. And that property will, will most likely be worth far more 20 years from now than it is today, giving me a great big lump sum at the end. There's some bugaboos in here. Right now, you could sell that property, take all that money, put it in your pocket, And the IRS says you can make something like a half a million dollars in real estate in your life and never pay no income tax on it. And they don't really track it very well. So you could probably sell that house and keep all of it tax-free. Most people don't know you can do that. They're worried about rollovers, buying another property that costs more. That's for investors. It's not for private homeowners. So you can sell that property and keep it, unless some change in the tax code that I'm not aware of. And then this is for selling personal real estate, single occupancy, housing for yourself. This is not for investment properties. Now, <laughs> what makes your house an investment property? If you start renting your property, you're going you're gonna to play a game called the depreciation expense, which is actually going to make, if your taxes are high, income taxes, make the 20 grand more. Because now you're going to start depreciating the house against, so you're going to create a phantom expense over those 20 years. And at that point, when you sell the house, you're going to pay taxes on it because you've taken the expense over the 20 years. So all of that put in there, that's like if you're getting into that part of making the decision, now you need to start, start talking to a CPA and, you're, and whoever you have as an investment advisor for your retirement planning. And they're probably stupid, but they still may have some, some ways of looking at it. So you don't do what they say. You take their advice and then consider it. That's how you use an investment advisor these day and age, unless you have you know, somebody good like Pugliano or something. He's going to tell you straight. So that's kind of my take on it. So it, that's really what I'm going to say. If, 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 if I think that my retirement planning has me looking pretty good at 84, I'm going to take the money now. If I think my retirement planning has me looking pretty sparse at 84, I'm more likely to go with the income route and save that for closer to that number. Let's, uh, if it was me at my age, I'd sell the damn thing. I would sell the damn thing outright um, because I don't know what the future looks like 20 years from now. And I don't know what the future of the price of housing looks like 20 years from now. It's pretty good bet that it'll be up. Never know, though. Never know. And what's going to happen to the surrounding neighborhoods? How are your tenants going to treat your property? What giant expense is going to show up in a house that's probably an older home? I'd sell it. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Mick calling from Chester County, PA, with a question for your food storage program. Uh, and the question is simply, what can I do with a garage? Uh, the details are I have a, a small 1,500-square-foot home that has, you know, a couple of small closets, no basement. Um, the only inside storage really is in the heater room, which I think would be just as bad as the garage. So all we have is the garage itself. So I'm wondering what um, what we can store in there as far as food. We have some canned, powdered stuff, freeze-dried things. Um, but I'm wondering if there's anything else we can get away with. 
with the cold in the winter and the warm in the summer. Uh, what are my options? Love to hear your answer. Thanks. Okay, light, heat, oxygen are the enemies of long-term storage. Light, heat, and oxygen. Light, not a problem in your garage, really. It's probably pretty dark in there most of the time. Uh, oxygen, that's all about the container. Heat, aha, now we have a problem. Coal, I'll get to in a second, because it can be an issue, but not as much as you might think. So you didn't tell me where you live. And there's a big difference to what you can successfully store in your garage if you live in South Texas versus Central Pennsylvania. Central Pennsylvania summers can get pretty hot, but only for a couple of months, and they're not really that hot, and it cools off every night. And garages can be kept pretty cool in, in that area with a box fan that runs for a couple cents a day and leaving a crack at the bottom of the garage door. You have a garage door opener. You can set it so it only so it stops six inches, and those two things alone will generally keep a garage cool enough that we're not baking the crap out of stuff. At that point, canned goods, um, dehydrated goods, all that kind of stuff, certainly water, Store it to your heart's content. Anything that can get sticky and gooey and melt, granola bars, candy, stuff like that, no go. Okay. Otherwise, you're all pretty much okay. Um, we'll talk about what it actually means in the totality of things in a second, but you can do it. Cold. This is the bugaboo, right? So if it gets really, really cold and you have freeze-dried mountain house beef cubes in there and it goes down to 15 degrees, it's a good thing. If anything extends the life of your storage, nothing's going to happen. If you have a can of uh, Campbell's pork and beans in there with liquid in it and it freezes solid, it may rupture the can. Now you got a problem. So what we need to do is then we need to keep the garage warm enough that things don't hard freeze on us. That's not really that hard either. I mean, you could take something like a Thermocube, and you only need to do this on nights where you know it's going to be really cold. Because if it goes down to 25 degrees outside... And, but it's but it's sunny during the day, and your garage is attached to your house. It's not going down to freaking 25 degrees in your garage. The thermal the thermal residue and the thermal battery that is your home is going to prevent that. So you're talking really cold. Well, they make a thing called the thermocube, and the thermocube will turn on at 35 degrees and turn off at 45 degrees. And a small portable heater in a in a two car garage with a thermocube plugged into it, when it hits 35 degrees in your garage, it'll turn on. And when it hits 45 degrees in your garage, it'll turn off, and they cost about 10 bucks on Amazon. And then all you need is a portable heater to go with it. On really cold nights, maybe you could throw a kerosene heater in there if you really wanted to or something like that, but I mean, that would be the way I would take it. Because we're not trying to keep it comfortable. We're just trying to keep things from freezing up. And In fact... I would say if you if you had if they made a thermocube that went like 30 to 40 that would be even better. But the one you can just buy is and I'll put a link to it in Amazon where you can see it uh, is a 35 to 45 uh, thermocube and it just looks like it just looks like a three way plug, like you would plug in just so you have three outlets instead of one. But it's got it, it's got a solid state uh, component inside it that just basically moves with the temperature, and when that thing hits. 35 degrees, it moves to a point where it allows power to flow. And it slowly comes back, and when it gets to the point where it hits 45 degrees, it's moved enough that it shuts the power back off. So that would get you through your coldest winter nights. And again, I wouldn't even plug it in on a night where it's going to hit 30 or even 25 degrees. I would plug it in on nights it's going to get really cold, and I would plug it in when you get that long-term 
period where you don't come above freezing and you don't get a lot of sun. So you get that week where the high for the week is 25 degrees. That's a high. And it, there's no sun shining in whatever. I'd let that thing run if you have anything there that can rupture. And otherwise, that's the kind of stuff you can store. I wouldn't store anything that can get mucked up, right? If you wouldn't leave it in a car, not in summer, but in winter, because you know it's going to get sticky and gooey, I wouldn't store it in there. And then I would also say that you, you, all of us should be doing this, but really the more that you don't have ideal storage conditions, the more you should be rotating your foods. So you probably need to focus more on storing foods that you use there and set up a rotation system and be using those foods because when you do have heat extremes especially, what you do is you reduce the longevity of storage. You have a 25-year mountain house, that's at 60 degrees or 50 degrees or whatever. You know, Ideal, perfect conditions. So if you're storing at an average temperature of 80, the years that that thing lasts goes down. Well, the same thing's true with a can of pork and beans or a can of wolf chili. So what you're storing in there should be things you actually use. Now, dry goods, well taken care of, like um, beans and rice and stuff like that, vacuum sealed uh, uh, or put in mylar and in O2 absorbers and in five-gallon buckets, that stuff, man, you, you'll die before that stuff really is not good anymore. Is it the best way to store it? No, but it'll be fine. It'll be fine. So if you have some long-term dry goods, I, I wouldn't worry about it much. Dehydrated vegetables, the mountain house stuff, again, even though I said it reduces the storage. Remember, that's the storage the manufacturer guarantees. You know, the storage the manufacturer guarantees on your can, can of Campbell's is like two years. Trust me, I've eaten Campbell's uh, pork and beans that are five years old, and if I put them in a plate next to ones that were just bought at the store yesterday, I don't think you'd be able to tell the difference. After that, what happens with canned goods, like wet canned goods, like beans and chilies and stuff, what happens is they start to really lose their texture. It won't kill you. You won't die. As long as the can is, is it's not going to go anywhere. But uh, you, you, you start to get really mushy. You lose texture. You start to lose flavor after about that five-year mark. And with heat, that will accelerate. It might be at the four-year mark. You start to notice a quality difference. So make sure you're rotating your food. If you're using everything in there on a two-year rotation, you prevent stuff from freezing, you're not going to have any problems at all. So like that's another big thing. We all should be storing water. That's an ideal place to store water. But you got to think about that. And, and remember, you don't necessarily have to warm the entire garage either. If you have an area that's kind of dedicated to storage and you hung like a really heavy drape there, and cut the garage in half or down to a quarter, and set your little portable heater with a thermocube in there, it, it's not going to be like you created an insulated environment, but you're going to use that heat a lot less, draw a lot less power, and it takes a lot less just to keep that stuff from freezing up. And another thing that would help you is to make sure that if you have the flexibility, that your storage wall is the wall that's adjacent to the house. Because what that's going to do is take some thermal energy from that wall and allow it to be in contact with the food that you're storing. Uh, next up, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. James and Hickory here with a food storage question for you. Um, <clears throat> how much food would be appropriate to store for neighbors in the event of an emergency situation? Um, 
not really sure how much we would need for you know people that just come knocking if things kind of get serious. Uh, I've got two apartment complexes kind of close by with probably like 50 to 100 households, and I know I can't feed them all, but I would like to be able to help some if they showed up. Uh, also, how would you store something like that? Because I don't think really putting it in, you know, a big five-gallon mylar bag is going to be very useful for those people, like maybe smaller bags that could be distributed more easily or something like that. Appreciate your thoughts. Bye. All right, let's start out with just a factual reality when it comes to food storage. Our food storage capabilities are limited primarily by two things. Spatial restrictions. We just had a question on storing food in a garage. So we only have so much space that we can store anything, and then we have only so much space that's ideal for food storage. And in the end, we still have a finite amount of space. We can only store so much food, period. The next thing we're limited by, of course, is financial resources. All right. So even if we have a lot of money that some people look at and say that person's well off or affluent, we, we still have to make decisions with our money. And every dollar we spend on one thing is a dollar we can't spend on another thing. So even if we could have a massive food storage because we have the space and the money, we still may not want to go that high with it just from a practical standpoint because there's other things in life we would like to have. Now, for the doomsday preppers that have five years' worth of food shoved in a bunker, I, I, I hope someday... You decide to go feed the poor or something with it because I really don't think that makes sense. Uh, I'm the kind of guy that I want to be out toward the, the six-month to one-year range with totality of capability. And, and I feel that gets us through just about anything we could ever have to get through. And that means in short-duration things, as long as I have the ability to restock, I can feed quite a few people. Okay, so... It's, I'm not against feeding neighbors, and I want to make sure I say that before I go forward so that people really understand what I'm saying. Because I've learned over the years, no matter how clear you try to be, you have to really state that you're trying to be clear sometimes. Because people listen at work, they listen while they're jogging, they listen while, listen while they're at the gym, and they get bits and pieces and miss connections sometimes and think you're saying something you're not. So I'm not going anti-feed your neighbor here at all. But in your food storage... The first question, can I feed myself and my family? You square that away first. And I think you're squaring that away to the tune of 90 days before the question of feeding anybody else even comes into your mind. And here's why. The idea that you'll be feeding someone else is most likely going to work out this way if it happens. There will be some sort of short duration problem, a week or so. You will have trusted neighbors, people that you know on a first-name basis, that you will even know are in, in, in really kind of a bind at that point. You'll invite those people to your home, and they'll share dinner with you. You will make up a casserole and take it to them. You'll give them a few things here and there. That is how it actually happens in practice. Two complexes with 50 households each. You're not even you're not even letting those people know that the potential exists for you to feed them. You can't in in a a two day period. That number of people will eat every bit of food you have stored in your property, and it creates all kinds of problems. So. I'm not one of these super secret squirrels about the fact that I'm a prepper, but I'm also not inviting large numbers of people to be fed. I'm just not. I'm going to focus on my family 
and the community members that I know that are in harm's way. And I'm gonna then so let's say that okay, Jack, well your community is pretty well squared away. And it is. So I would talk to my neighbors, does anybody need anything, what have you? And if everybody's good, do you know someone that needs something? And it's more of a network type thing. The reason I'm helping you is I am friends with this guy, and he's okay, but he's really kind of put out. He says, you need a little help, so here I'm going to help you out with whatever that is. I have to be judicious with that. So how much should I store for neighbors? I'm not even thinking that way. What I'm thinking is, how much can I store for my family reasonably well, and then if a crisis occurs... What is the expected duration of the crisis and how much can I spare to help the people that I know that I can help without causing a problem for myself? I'm not going to ever put up a sign, free food, check with us. Okay? And I don't think anybody should do that. And that's why you need to know your neighbors now. And you need to, to, what you do is you help people to the level of their need and your ability, where those two lines cross. And that's what you do. Now, If you said, Jack, I want to be able to feed people, and I think there might come a time where I have to feed a lot of people, I would store dry shell corn, I would store dry rice, I would store dry beans, I would store them in five-gallon buckets, and I wouldn't even worry that much about the whole dadgone thing with a uh, you know mylar and stuff like that. I'd, I'd, I'd throw them in there, I'd get a good bucket lid opener, because uh, sometimes when you do what I'm about to say, it's almost impossible to open it. I would throw, I would fill them to about an inch of the top of the uh, the bucket. I would throw a giant uh, oxygen absorber in there. I'm going to tell you how to get those in just a second. Really cheap, and they'll be available very soon. And uh, I'd slap that lid on there, and I'd put it aside. And sometimes, you you know, even with a bucket puller, it's hard to get a lid off of one of those. I don't care. If I'm ever opening one of those, I'll drill a hole in it, take a, a Sawzall or a, uh, a, a whatever. Well, actually, as soon as you drill a hole in the lid, it'll pop right off. Because you, you broke the vacuum at that point. So if I had to, if I couldn't get the lid off, I'd cut the damn lid open with a, a scroll saw. So, I mean, that's what people don't think. I, well, I can't get it open. Really? You can't get through plastic with a drill? You can't take a screwdriver and a hammer and pop a hole in it? Well, I'll break the lid. You're in a crisis situation. You don't give a damn about the lid. You need the food out, right? So I would store stuff like that. And then what I would do is if somebody came and said, I need food, I'd give them like a cup of each. Here you go. That's all you, and I might store like macaroni and stuff like, or spaghetti. You know, you could buy spaghetti in the plastic long, you know, long regular spaghetti, and it comes wrapped in plastic, and those just fit vertically into a five gallon bucket really, really well. You can pack a shitload in there for not much money, and there's enough headspace then that you could take smaller, like smaller packages of like macaroni, put that on the top, throw your O2 absorbent, or slap the lid on it. You got those four things. That's enough to keep people alive. That's what you're getting, right? Uh, I don't know how to cook beans. Well, you're out of luck. You can store deer corn. I don't want to eat deer corn, but if you're freaking hungry, you'll eat what you can get. Wheat would be another low-cost thing that could be stored like that. Wheat we can cook with a thermos and boiled water. You put a few cups of wheat in a thermos, you boil some water, you pour it over top of the, the, the wheat, put the lid on the thermos and set it aside for a few hours. makes a really great cereal. I don't eat that because it doesn't fit with my dietary requirements anymore, but I would rely on that. It's nourishing. It's whole wheat. It's it's good stuff. You pretty much do the same thing with rice and many other grains as well, but wheat works really well that way. Those are the types of things I would store if I was really worried about it. And if nothing else, at some point, 
you know, I can feed people. Even if I don't, I can have a big pasta fest or something like that if I decide I don't need it anymore. Uh, there you go on that one. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Bill in South Carolina. I'm calling um, in response to your request for food storage questions. Um, about a month ago, you posted a video where you had smoked some turkey breast in preparation for your recent uh, uh, training event. Um, questions I have regarding that is how exactly did you store those breasts? I'm assuming that you vacuum sealed and frozen, but, uh, but that wasn't completely covered in the video. Um, secondly, how long would you store a, uh, a cooked and frozen item in that manner if that's in fact what you did? And finally, how did you prepare those, um, those breasts for, for service without, uh, without overcooking? Um, thanks so much for all you do. I look forward to your answer. Bye-bye. Oh, geez, an easy one. It's nice to have an easy one today. The rest of these have been pretty complicated. So uh, I smoke turkey with whatever I feel like using. I have a Weber, simple Weber kettle grill that I have a product called a Smokinator for. I've smoked turkey and many other meats with that. It works great. It holds a beautiful 250 degrees. I have videos out on that. Uh, I use my sidebox smoker. I have a great big New Braunfels smoker, sidebox smoker. I've smoked plenty of stuff on that. But I smoked that turkey in the Bradley smoker, which is an electric smoker I learned about from Kevin Keegan. It's pretty much, uh, you gotta keep an eye on it because, you know, it can get too hot or whatever, but, and you're cooking like a lot of stuff in it, like brisket with a lot of grease, you can cause a grease fire. Uh, but otherwise, it's kind of a set it and forget it. You set the temperature and it has a little automatic thing that just keeps feeding your smoke pucks in. And that's how I smoked that turkey, and it came out beautifully. And it looks like a little insulated mini-fridge, which is pretty much what it is, with this thing on the side that actually uh, controls the, the feeding of the pucks. And so that's how I did that. Um, but you can smoke turkey any variety of ways. When I smoke turkey uh, like this, I will smoke it for like an hour and a half. I'll run smoke, and then I'll keep it on heat. So if I'm on a sidebox smoker, I can stop feeding chips, and I go more to just a hot coal. Uh, or with the Bradley smoker, I just stop feeding it because there's a heater element in it, and I keep it up around 200 degrees. And I'm going to take it to where I would say it's 90% cooked to be served. Like if I was going to serve it, I wouldn't be leaving it much longer. It's almost fully cooked. That leaves me a little bit of headspace to warm it up and, and, and cook it through without drying it out. And then I'll let it rest really, really well. And then I will take it and I will put it in a, a, a like a Ziploc bag or what have you without zipping it. And I will set it in the freezer. And I will freeze it mostly frozen. And I'll roll that Ziploc bag, leaving it open. I'll slide that into my vacuum seal bag. And then I will vacuum seal it. And I do that for two reasons. One, when you have bigger pieces of meat, any small little bit of bone or some kind of sharp area, just maybe the skin got crisp and sharp, can put little pinpricks in your vacuum seal bag and you think it's vacuum sealed and you go pull it out like a month later and it's loose and freezer burnt. And that sucks. So by putting that Ziploc bag around it, you prevent that from happening. And by freezing it in the Ziploc bag, not sealed up first, though, you solidify all the juices so when you vacuum seal it, you're not pulling juice down the bag. Because sometimes you think you got away with it. You think you were smart. I, I pulsed it. I pulsed it. I pulsed it. Because you can pulse vacuum sealers. 
So instead of just going, and it decides, you get it mostly vacuumed. You see those little juices coming by. You say, stop, seal. And you think it's sealed. But a little bit of moisture got in your seal, and your seal fails. Well, if you freeze it first, when you vacuum seal it, you run it full-on, full-bore vacuum seal, pulls it nice and tight, shrink wraps it around there, beautiful, perfect seal, no moisture gets in your seal, your seal lasts. When it's done that way, I would take something like a piece of smoked turkey or pork shoulder or anything like that had been even pre-cooked and put away that way, and I would leave that in the freezer a year. I won't try to leave it a year, but I would say like that's how long I have to eat it before its quality begins to go down. And they store really well that way. They really do because there's no oxygen. You don't get any freezer burn, etc. If you want to do, if you go buy a cup, like let's say you go to uh, Costco or something, and buy four or five big roasts, and you decide to cook one and freeze several others, and you don't want to pre-cook them. You just want to freeze them, and you want to keep them that way. I do the same thing, guys. Inside a Ziploc bag first, inside the freezer, let all that blood freeze, the, the residual blood that could come out freeze. Wrap it up loosely, shove that into there, and Ziploc that, and you won't have your, your freezer bags fail. So there you go. Anyway, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, had a question here out of Ohio. Uh, winter is fast approaching, and uh, the rabbits are chewing up a lot of my uh, bushes and fruit trees and wanted to see what's the best way to go about that. Should I just trap the rabbits and uh, eat those throughout the winter? Or should I put some uh, netting or some fence around the bottoms of the, uh, the fruit trees and uh net or fence the bushes in what's your advice on that and uh thanks for everything you do for all of us thank you well uh first of all listening to him to say say to me thank you for everything you do for all of us at the end of that makes me realize that not often enough do i tell all of you guys thank you for what you do for me you guys that listen to this show share this show support my show support my sponsors um you guys do everything for me uh, you enable everything that I'm able to do, both the things I do public-facing for you guys in my private life, which is pretty good because of you guys. So thank you to each and every one of you that's been part of the show in any way from the beginning right up until now. Thank you. Um, next up, though, the answer to your question of either or, I would answer with a yes. Okay? And what I mean by that is I like rabbits, and they taste really good. And if you can legally or just say you you can logistically trap these rabbits on your property and ain't nobody going to bother you about it, uh, I'd be eating a lot of rabbit, and that would, that would mitigate the problem. But it's not going to get rid of the problem. You're not going to get all the rabbits. I mean, rabbits breed like rabbits, and rabbits basically are hopping rats. I mean, people don't want to think about it that way, but they're – Pretty similar in many ways to the rat as far as their ability to reproduce and survive. And that's why they've been with us so long and will continue to be with us. So I would also uh, just use some you know, chicken wire or what have you. You make little circles around your trees and wire them together. Uh, you can do that. The other thing you can do is if you have actual trees, like with, with some stuff it's kind of bushy and the bushes down low and they're just gnawing the hell out of it because they only can get up so high. Generally, I mean, a rabbit can climb, but they generally don't. The bigger problem people have is that you have a sapling or a young tree. And what they do is they actually, because the cambium, which is the layer between the bark and the actual woody core of the trunk, which is where the life of the tree is, it's where all the stuff goes, 
There's sugars in there, especially in the winter. Because the sugars drop out of the leaves, go down the cambium into the roots, feed the roots, and start to grow. And as the tree, especially in late winters, it knows it's about time to start budding out, those, those, uh, those roots start sending sugars back up, and your buds start to swell. When that's going on, there's all kinds of sugars in there. Now, it's not super sweet to me and you, but to a hungry rabbit in the winter, that's good stuff. So they bite that and they eat it. So in that case, I don't really need to keep the rabbit away from the tree. I need to keep the rabbit away from the tree trunk. This is cheap, simple, and easy. You go to Home Depot or Lowe's, and you get a great big roll of that perforated drain pipe, the plastic stuff. You get a big roll of that. You cut it about two foot lengths, and you take a, a razor knife, and you set it on the ground so that you don't cut yourself. You always cut away, and don't cut yourself with a razor knife. You cut a slit right down it. And you can go 18 inches is usually enough, but two feet will help you be a little bit more sure of yourself. You, you hold it open, and you put it over the tree. And then you pile some dirt or mulch up around the bottom so that it kind of stays in place. And then the rabbit can't get to the trunk. And he goes off and bothers something else. And that's a lot less expensive and a lot easier than putting, you know, your, your tr more traditional chicken wire around because it amazes you how much footage it adds up to when you're doing a two foot circle. Because a two foot circle don't take two foot of fence, right? If it's two foot across. And you end up not wanting to make them really, really small because you want to keep the rabbit away. So that's what I would look at is get that, 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 that uh, perforated drain pipe. Check Craigslist. A lot of times people buy a whole crap load of that to do a job, and they end up with it in surplus. They'll sell it for next to nothing. Talk to your neighbors. Sometimes people have that stuff laying around, but it's really easy to do. And the good part of it is if you decide, well, I don't need it in spring once the trees are up and growing and the rabbits are happy and I don't want it there, that comes off easy. It stores easy. And by the time a tree gets big, that's four inches in diameter, by the way. By the time a tree gets big enough that it, it, is, you know, it's kind of restrictive there. You got like a four inch trunk. You're not worried about rabbits hurting your tree anymore. You've got enough leather on the arm or so to speak that your rabbit is neutralized. So I, I would take the opportunity to harvest some meat though. Um, especially if you can do it without any kind of problems from the Department of Making You Sad, aka John Law, aka the Government Mafia. Uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Dave from the Sacramento Valley of California. Uh, I just wanted to get your two cents on, uh, you know, rage and burnout or a mixture of the two or one without the other. I, uh, I find myself, and it seems that you have probably been in a similar situation often, uh, that you feel like you're pulling more weight than you should while others are riding along, maybe. Anyways, uh, just let me know what you think. Thank you for your time, and uh, thanks for everything you do. Bye. I'm not completely sure of the angle of the question. There's there's two ways to look at it. There's you know rage and burnout, looking at the situation around us, and then there's rage and burnout uh, of being in in some sort of venture with others where they're not pulling their weight, which you also mentioned there. Uh, I've often called it you know being on a tandem bike where you're pedaling and the other party has their feet up. Um, and, and I've been in those situations too, and, and I end those relationships. 
Uh, I just end those relationships. We're just not going to continue in any kind of a partnership where I feel like I'm doing all the work and the other parties aren't. So that that's the number one way that I, I would deal with that situation. Um, but I, I think overall you're talking more about life. You're talking more about life. And, and, and this is where I said we would come back in the last segment to meet the first. We were talking about a convention of the states, and I sure wish the people of this country would stand up and, and push back government, but they're not going to. They're not going to be willing to do what it takes to make that happen. They're not willing to make the sacrifices, etc. And then you also look at the encroachments of government. And, and I mean, if you want somebody to give you rage, you start looking at police shutting down a little girl selling lemonade, uh, and, and the government surveilling its people, violating its constitutional uh, responsibilities, on and on and on it goes. You know, labeling an American citizen a terrorist and bombing them in a foreign country with no trial, not even trial in absentia. Uh, and you just keep going, right? Um, attempt to take away our rights, uh, a complete disregard to our Constitution, etc. Um, and the average person being a complete idiot. I mean, the average person in this country has turned into a reality TV moron. I, I, I always say reality TV is non-reality TV. Sadly, it's getting to a point where like we've shown it to people for so long that people are starting to actually act like reality. It's becoming reality through emulation. Um, the movie Idiocracy, if we look at that, you know, there's a meme going around that said Idiocracy was supposed to be a comedy, uh, not a documentary. You know, it wasn't a how-to manual, things like that. And I've had my moments over the years of doing the show where, I mean, I was ready to just have my brain start shooting out of my ears. When I look at my country going to hell in a handbasket, uh, my government stepping on the throats of its people, etc., And, and what I actually found is my evolution from kind of moderate libertarian to very much anarcho-libertarian to anarchist, the further I moved in that direction, the less anger, rage, hatred, angst, etc. that I felt. The, the more calm I actually became about everything. The, the general reason that people that want more liberty and freedom in their lives and for their country feel anger and rage as they actually feel like the things they're doing should be working even though that they're not. And they also like have this feeling like others aren't doing enough, right? Uh, and if that's the way you mean, then all I can say is the solution is the same in both worlds. You focus on the things you actually control. You focus on the things you actually have influence on. And when those things in of themselves are not effective, even though you have influence on them, you find things to do that are more effective. If I'm running a business and it's not profitable, rather than working harder at the things that are already not making me not profitable, I'm going to find things that I can change to doing that will enhance the business and make it profitable. Or I'm going to accept the fact this business is not meant to survive and I'm going to put it down gently and I'm going to, to transition into doing something else. If it's at a job where no one's doing their damn job and I'm doing everything, I'm going to actually take two stances on that. One, if it's absolutely true, you need to find a new place to work. Uh, on the other hand, many times, it's your own personal anger. And we use a word like rage, right? That's beyond just basic anger. That's seething underneath. Like, I want to choke the living crap out of somebody, right, type of thing. Um, many times, we're unhappy, 
and the things that people do in a workplace that are lame-ass things, but they're not that bad, seem so much worse. You know, it's the final straw that breaks the back of the camel, so to say, right? You can have a camel, and he seems like he's sort of kind of still okay, throw a little bit more on the load, boom, down he goes. And what you threw on wasn't something he couldn't bear. In fact, what you threw on, if he had nothing else, would have been he wouldn't even have known it was there. But as the last piece, or if you look at a power lifter, right, that's trying to break a record, they'll go up and up in how much weight they can lift, and it's always one one more pound. It's all it takes is when you find their max, you give them one more pound and they can't go over it. And if they do go over that, you just keep adding a pound at a time. Sooner or later, you'll get to a point where it's one pound is the difference. One ounce is the difference. If you've ever spotted somebody lifting weights and they're trying, and they're almost there, they're, and you know if you go bench press, right? When you get just before that halfway point up, that's the hardest spot. And if you get past the halfway point, you're going to be able to extend your arms. And you're spotting someone on like that last rep, and they get right to that point, and you know they can't get under there. It doesn't take much, does it? One finger on the bar and a couple ounces, and up it comes. And if it's the second to the last rep, you kind of follow them down, sit on crush their chest, and you, you maybe do a, double that to help them get there and over it and up the bar. And once once they get past that halfway point, boom, the bar comes up. It's that last bit. And so if we're unhappy in our lives, wherever the place is that we encounter the most dissatisfaction, even if it's not the source of our dissatisfaction, but the most on... So in other words, your job might be all these like little, like somebody like poking you in the arm, right? And just poking you in the arm, poking your arm, poking the arm. It's not really a big deal, but it's annoying. And it's, it's, it's a lot of times you get poked. You get poked 20, 30 times a day, you get a little poke in the arm. You're just poked, right? But if you go home... And you're in an abusive relationship and somebody beats your ass every night. But you can't do anything about that other than leave. And you won't leave. You're not a place where you will leave. It's going to be sooner or later somebody that pokes you is going to be the person you jump on, wrap your legs around their neck and start pounding their head into the ground. Right? What you really wanted to do is fight back against the bigger force, but you couldn't. And I think a lot of people that have these problems in workplaces and feel like nobody else there gives a damn... You probably do care more than everybody else, but it's probably not as bad as you think. So I would put you on a program in that situation of write down everything that's good about your job, every single thing that's good about your job, and then write down every day every good thing that happens, and write down every good thing that anybody else does. Don't worry about the bad. Just write it down in a just a, a stupid notebook just and read it every day. And if you can't find anything, then you need a job. But you'd be surprised at what you'll find if you look for it. And all of a sudden, you might feel like three or four weeks into it, man, those people changed. They didn't change, you did. Right? Because if you're in a job and you need a job and you have to have a job and that's the best job you can find right now, you got to deal with it. So you train yourself to deal with it. And that's one way to do that. If it's actually the case, then you got to go somewhere else. What I find more in our space, though, is people are actually upset about the government. They're upset about... The fact that we have a president like we do. They're upset about the fact that you look at the next election and go, really? Really? It's going to be either Clinton versus Trump or Clinton versus Cruz or Clinton versus Root. Really? This is what we're getting again? And you're frustrated. And you start to realize that the, the people that look diametrically opposed are once again saying the same shit. 
Clinton and Trump are both talking about shutting down the Internet and how people will say that it's a violation of rights, and that's dumb. Really? And, and, and you, then you see all these things, like I said, little kids having lemonade stands shut down, people trying to farm, being forced to destroy their product, all this crap that's going on and attacking people. And then that's the, beat, that's the beating. That's the beatdown. So other things in your life are the pokes, but the pokes become the focus because I feel helpless. My abuser, my attacker is too big and too powerful, but this poke guy, I can, I can beat this poke guy's ass. Right? And you're halfway there. Because the poke is something you can, you can do something about. And, and the, the, the abuser is something the only way to end an abusive relationship is to end the relationship. If you're a woman in a, in a relationship with a man that beats you, he needs to go his ass to jail, and you need to get the hell away from him, and he needs to never, ever, ever come near you ever again. Okay, A man that beats his woman is a piece of shit scumbag. Needs his teeth kicked against a curb. He needs to be curbed. Some of you know what curbing is. Needs his ass beat down and needs to never be allowed to go near anybody that he can harm ever again. And if he thinks about it, he needs his ass beat again. But that isn't going to happen. So what you need to do is be strong enough to end the relationship. Okay. That's how you end up coming to anarchy. It really is. Or... If you're not ready yet, libertarianism. You realize that this relationship that you have with society, with our government, is in a, a relationship with an abuser. And that the only way I can... Be, and, and that abuser is going to go on abusing. And I can't stop that. But I can terminate the relationship. And I can step aside and I can go elsewhere to where that abuser can't get me or... Their, their influence on me is limited. I can do it mentally and in physical space. So I, when, I, when I'm enraged about the fact that the government's shutting down small farms, I'm going to find the place, if that's what I want to do, I know there's places where that can be done where that doesn't happen. I'm going to find that place. And I'm going I'm to I'm operate there. And, and just like a battered woman that sees other battered women, and, and, and it, it hurts, and they want them out of that relationship too, But they know they can't go in and physically separate until that person's willing to walk away from the relationship. They're going to keep going back in. The guy can go to jail 20 times for abuse. Court can even issue a restraining order if that woman's willing to recouple with that guy and give him another chance. He's going to abuse her again. And all you can do is offer support and say, look, you've got to end this. You are the one that's a, not, it's not your fault, but you're the one allowing this to happen to you. And you have to refuse to allow it to happen to you anymore. And it's probably not a good idea that the next time he comes home to beat you, you shove a butcher knife in his chest. Because it will ruin your life in one way or another. He might take it away from you and slit your throat. The police might not believe you and put you in prison. You might only injure him, and he might tell a different story, and you might go to jail. He might be waiting to abuse you when you come out. There's just so many things that can go wrong with that, and that's the, the violent revolution against government. Or you can just sever the relationship. Now, I want to tell you something about that, and this is something I was saying comes back around. It's not a perfect solution. My solution to this problem is not perfect. It doesn't come without sacrifice. It doesn't come without remorse. 
don't think that I don't want to believe in mom and the flag and apple pie again as though the three go together because I believe in moms and I believe in apple pie and I believe in the flag. But I believe in that those three things separately and what they represent separately and what they are for separately and what they do separately. You might find it ironic that I, I, an anarchist would say, I, I believe in the flag. Well, I believe in the things the flag is supposed to symbolize but doesn't anymore. Freedom and liberty. Freedom and liberty to me means everybody gets to do anything they want as long as they don't hurt anybody else. That's freedom and liberty. That's what that means to me. And we're supposed to live in a place where we can be as close to that as possible. And we're not. So I have to create my bubble of that, knowing it will never be perfect. And seeing people actually believe in things that feel good to believe in and not being able to believe them anymore, at times it's lonely, at times it's hard, it's not easy. It Sometimes it costs you relationships with people that are good people. And that's why you need to strive to not put down people that aren't where you are yet. Unless they're totally nuts to the extreme. People that are basically, people that I said wouldn't make the commitment to get the Convention of the States to actually restrict government, but they like the idea of it, they're on a walk. And they may never get to where you are in their lifetime, but at least they're on the walk in the right direction. And you need to accept that. And you need to be able to find a peace with yourself with that. Because if you don't, then you're going to end up miserable, a miserable old curmudgeon that just thinks everybody and everything sucks. And there's wonderful things in the world, and there's wonderful things about America. There's gloriously wonderful things about America. And, and despite the, the, the massive fall that this country has taken and continues to take, it is still the case that in many ways, one of the most blessed things you could be from birth is an American citizen. That's not that there's no citizenry that might not offer other advantages, or there might not be a case where some people would actually leave the, the country and renounce their citizenship. And I wouldn't say, I don't I, under, I understand why you're doing that. I get it. I get it. I get why it works for you. But in the end, you can still pretty much do anything you want here. We have amazing choices because we are a republic. A republic is, is, is not a perfect government, but an actual republic that this nation is. In spite of the fact that legislatively we're an oligarchy, the functional geographic nature of a republic, where the states are different, and we have freedom of movement, and we can walk away from the worse to the better, is, is, is something that many countries simply don't have, just due to their size. If you go anywhere in Spain, it's pretty similar. Anywhere in France is pretty similar. And it's getting to be the case where it's not even that much different within the European Union. It's homogenizing. And they're trying to do it here. And that's what you need to understand. That this federalization of things, that's what that is. Let's remove the competitive nature of the states. Let's make everybody in every state equal. It's actually very difficult to do because of the way that our government was set up and because of the, 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 the huge size of our nation, the cultural differences of our states. But in the end, you know that all of it's bullshit once you sever the relationship. You know it's fake. You know it's phony. You know that no matter who we send, they're going to do the same things. You know that the lobbyists will always have more influence than the people under the current situation. And you know the erosion will continue. And then you realize, I have to just focus out here. And it's like ending a relationship with something you really used to love.
but you know you can't love it anymore because it doesn't love you back. And that's not about the people of this country in general. That's not about the place that is America. It certainly isn't about the ideal that is America, but it's the government that controls America and the private corporatocracy that uses the government to control America. It's about the fascist cabal. And once you see it, it's like that pill in the matrix. You can't forget it. There's times you'll actually want to. You'll want to just really believe in the hope the way you did when you were a kid with your hand on your heart saying the pledge and you didn't know you were saying a pledge written by a socialist that actually is counter to your nation and what it's supposed to be about. A pledge that your founders of your nation would roll over in their graves if such were possible to know that our children are being indoctrinated with that type of thinking. And your friends will think you mad for saying it. There's people mad at me right now for saying that. Not our pledge. We need to pledge. It's group prayer, guys, to the state. I'm sorry. That's what it is. I don't want it to be. I want to have pride in that again. But I've ended the relationship. I've ended the relationship with the state, not the place. Okay? State capital S. My relationship with America is stronger than ever. My actual true patriotism is stronger as an anarchist than it was as a citizen. Because as an anarchist, I realize all we have are each other. And I'm responsible for myself first. And all I can do is live by the principle of non-aggression to my greatest ability. And all I can do is offer other people the chance to come out. But the truth is... It's a tough decision. Because as soon as you do accept it, you know you can't go back. And you never will. And it doesn't mean you won't miss things about it. It's like a breakup. That brings me to my song today for the end of the show. There's a gal named Ashley Jones. I used a little segment of her music for a video I did a while ago with the geese and the ducks. And uh, I just liked the first intro to it. And it kind of worked with the video because I only used about 30 seconds of it. It didn't really get into the whole thing about it being a breakup, and it's going to be a long morning without the person she's breaking up with. I kind of play that today for all of the people that have ended their relationship with an abusive state, or all the people that are considering ending their relationship with an abusive state. It's not all sunshine and roses, but your life does get better because there's a lot less anger. There's a lot less rage because we've gone from a feeling that I need to be changing things in this giant sphere that I actually have no influence on. And it's very it's like trying to beat a brick wall with your bare hands. No matter how much you believe that wall needs to go down, brick is harder than your hands. And saying, I'm going to stop that. And I'm going to evaluate what I actually influence. Where I actually make a difference. I'm going to put all my effort on that. It's hard. And it's a long journey afterward. But it's worth it. With that, here's Long Morning by Ashley Jones. Kind of a folksy kind of sound. Really cool song. And this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. <laughs>